So I finally did it. I went back and rewatched the second half in overtime of the Rose Bowl. In an attempt to be cathartic, my original plan was to go over a detailed list of observations and reactions I had while watching the second half of the game. However, after getting halfway through my list, I decided to abruptly stop. This wasn't cathartic in any way. After dwelling on the outcome of the game so long, after replaying any number of plays in my head for three months, I realized something. This is stupid. I'm not a coach. I'm not a player. I have zero impact on the game. Why am I allowing a handful of plays that happened three months ago control my life like that? It's silly. I assume as an OU fan, I'm not alone in these feelings. That game stung for a multitude of reasons. If you try to touch on any and everything that went wrong that afternoon, you're just feeding the bad vibes, man. So I have a solution for anyone possibly feeling like this. Let it go. College football games are decided by a plethora of plays that all come down to a matter of inches. Sometimes you execute perfectly. Sometimes you execute sort of well. And sometimes you flat out don't execute. Sometimes you call the perfect plays. Sometimes you call sort of okay plays. And sometimes you flat out call the wrong play. These are my main takeaways from the Rose Bowl. All of those things will happen again in a different game in the future. And guess what? The next time they could be on the right end and not the losing end. So while we're deep into the void that is the college football offseason, I know it's easy to dwell on that last game. 2014 was a much better offseason, for example, coming off of the Sugar Bowl victory over Alabama. That didn't amount to anything once the next season kicked off. The point is this. The future is very bright if you are an OU football fan. The program has been injected with new life, more talent, and higher expectations. This is just the beginning of a new era of OU football, an era I think all of us will be very proud of down the road. The Rose Bowl really hurt. We all wanted it really bad. However, January 1st, 2018 in Pasadena is just where the story starts. When National Championship banner number eight is hanged, this one is going to hurt a whole lot less. I promise you that. I'm Grant Benson. This is West of Everest. White, back of the end zone, touchdown Rankins. Jawan Rankins out of Windsor, North Carolina with a seven-yard touchdown catch. His sixth touchdown of the year. No disrespect to Texas A&M, but right now, looks like the Sooners could hang 100 on them. Might put half 100 on them here in the first half. They were close. OU very nearly put half a hundred on Texas A&M in the first 30 minutes. By halftime on November 8th, 2003, OU led the Aggies 49 to nothing. The intro today, courtesy of Jawan Rankins, whose seven-yard touchdown catch that day gave the Sooners a 28-0 second quarter lead. As you all probably remember, Oklahoma went on to beat Texas A&M 77 to nothing that day, and the Sooners could have put up a hundred easily if they would have wanted to OU had 77 before the end of the third quarter hello and welcome to west of everest i'm lee benson you heard grant at the top with the opening take today we'll bring him back in a moment also thank you to all who listened and watched his opening take live on facebook oklahoma's on spring break this week so no spring practice which also means no spring practice media availability so our show today We'll have a couple of big topics. 
maybe some more. But the two main ones, though, one looking back and the other one also looking forward a bit. I'll explain in a moment. But first, I want to remind you that West of Everest is on Facebook. If you're also on Facebook and you like the show, please find us at West of Everest. Give us a like. Give us a follow. That way you'll be alerted to when we do go live and also post any updates. You can also leave us messages and whatnot on Facebook as well. Grant and I check it out all the time, so we'll be able to get back to you ASAP. In fact, we have a Facebook message today on the show that we will talk about that we'll answer some questions on one of the listeners' questions about Baker Mayfield. Also, if you'd like to contact us the old-fashioned way, email the show, westofeverest at gmail.com. Again, that's westofeverest at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Lee Benson News 9, the number 9. And then you can follow Grant on Twitter at Grant Benson 25, at Grant Benson 25. So with that out of the way, let's bring back Grant, who has an incredible weekend planned out from what I understand. Lee, I will be in Las Vegas this weekend, the Sin City, the uh, other monikers for Las Vegas that are not coming to mind right now. I don't know. Can you think of any? It doesn't matter. Who cares? I'm gonna be um, I'm gonna be doing a lot of gambling on certain uh, sporting events, mostly basketball. I'm very excitedly, which is perfectly legal in Las Vegas, from what I understand. It is. So that's I mean, good. my sources say that gambling is legal in in Las Vegas, Nevada, USA. In fact, uh, you're gonna be going there about a year after we were all there as well. Because last year we went on the same upcoming weekend for the Sweet 16 of college basketball. But if I remember correctly, when you and I and the, and the other guys got there, we were there just for the weekend portion. So it was just the Elite Eight. But this time you're going to be there in time for the Sweet 16 game. So that gives you even more college basketball to put money down on. So that's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, we're leaving on Wednesday night. So we'll be able to wake up early Thursday morning in Vegas. We'll be able to get to the sports book. We'll, we'll be able to start to play some wagers. It's it's a fun time. If you've never been able uh, been able to get out to Vegas and and uh, during March Madness time, we went last year for the first time. It's uh, It gets pretty wild there. It's the atmosphere around the sports books is a lot of fun. It's uh, If you're a basketball fan and if you're also a fan of, uh, of putting a little money down on games, I, would, I could not recommend it enough. It's just a whole lot of fun. And of course, the big weekend there is the previous weekend where there's the first round games and the second round games so there's just basketball all the wall one of these years uh we got to get out to vegas for that first weekend so uh just it's all about planning and um you know when oklahoma's in the tournament it's tough for me to get off work unfortunately so i guess uh you know maybe uh when jobs change and things happen that can be uh, a possibility in the future so anyways let's get back to football your opening take grant was all about the rose bowl and how it's best to kind of just let it go. And I understand that, and I would submit that a lot of Sooners fans have moved on from the game. I mean, it was about three months ago now almost, and spring ball's already started, so 2018's kind of already taken uh, kind of taken the minds and hearts, I guess, of Oklahoma fans in a way, trying to move on to the next thing. And I'll say that I've definitely moved on from the game, but I don't get those same feelings that you do when I go back and rewatch the game. To me, going back and looking at some parts of the the matchup is just fascinating because, uh, well, yeah, obviously it's annoying that Oklahoma made so many mistakes offensively in that second half after such a fantastic first half, and obviously the defense was bad for the vast majority of the game. But since the Rose Bowl is the most recent Oklahoma game, and it was such a crazy game, I don't mind looking back on it. So we're going to talk about the overtime periods from that game, but 
I will push it back to later in the show because in case you're an OU fan who doesn't want any Rose Bowl talk, when we get to that segment later in the show, you can just stop listening and move on with your life. But before we make any drastic decisions, though, before you decide, you know what, I don't want to listen to that, the reason I wanted to talk about this now is because I finally got a chance to watch that ESPN coaches film version of overtime in the game, which you told me that was on YouTube, so I wouldn't check that out. So that means we've got Gary Patterson commenting on certain plays, and we have some other camera angles that I hadn't seen originally, the all-22 camera angle, of course, to dissect certain things. So we'll save all of that for the overtime Rose Bowl talk, and we'll save that for the end of the show. Right now, I want to go over a topic that we've done before on this show, but not as precise as we could have. A listener posted on our Facebook page that he'd like a detailed compare and contrast discussion about Baker Mayfield and Johnny Manziel. And I think this is a good time for that conversation because today on Colin Cowherd's show, once again, Cowherd compared Mayfield to Manziel. So, Grant, are you prepared to give detailed reasons why it's foolish to compare Blake, uh, compare Baker Mayfield and Johnny Manziel? Yeah, sure. How much time do you have? Well, we have um, technically all the time in the world, but we... Don't want to go too long in this podcast, but yeah, I get your point. Um, again, we've done this before on the, on the podcast, but I think it's important since we actually did get a prompt from one of our listeners to go into details of, of why it's kind of foolish to, to compare the two players. So let's dive right in first by reading what our listener wrote on the West of Evers Facebook page. This is from Sam. Sam writes, can you contrast Mayfield to Manziel, a fiery leader with big-time collegiate stats and a propensity to alienate opponents and fans with immature actions on and off the field? Both are smaller than a prototypical quarterback. Both make plays with their feet and are tough to bring down and both play in off- offense-happy offenses. The comparison has to be discussed. I think the key with Manziel, outside of his tendency to overindulge, was the Cleveland Browns system, which is where quarterbacks have gone to end their career since 1999. Absent a Big Ben or Russell Wilson type situation where Mayfield comes into a team that is just missing one piece and has a strong defense and a nice run game, do you think Mayfield will be able to succeed? And then Sam also has a couple other follow-up questions as well that we'll get to after uh, we first discuss that opening paragraph. So I'll open up the floor to you, Grant. I'll let you determine which part of that paragraph you'd like to address first. Well, so uh, I'll... I'll first start with, you know, he, he made the comment about um, how it was the Browns system, which, and, and I'm sure a lot, a lot of it had to do with it. Cleveland is, um, still remains a, a, com- a complete joke of an organization. I know they, they've, they've turned into kind of a punchline, so I'm not breaking any news stories by calling them a joke of an organization, but until they prove otherwise, that is, that is the case. They are. Um, so I, I would push back on, on that being the main uh, factor. I, I would, I would mostly point towards Manziel's off the field issues I think it's come out now he, he certainly had a substance abuse problem um, if you remember along those lines you know he was he was in Vegas that one weekend someone caught him doing cocaine in the in the bathroom and people were, were kind of were like oh is that really him I think now with all the information that's come out that was obviously him um, he came out recently was talking about his his bipolar disorder and whatnot so I, I I think just first of all Johnny Manziel was 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 just not emotionally ready to step into not even the NFL but any professional setting for that matter. He he was a guy who who just who was not um, emotionally prepared to put in the the work and the effort that is necessary to play this game at a high professional level. So I think that was the biggest undoing of him. Um, we can certainly get into more of a, a, a football 
reasons for for why they're different. I think I, I certainly think Manziel is a better athlete than Baker Mayfield. Um, but that's about it. That's that's pretty much where where it all I think kind of stops. You know, I as as football players, I, I think they look similar because they're similar in stature. Um, and, and Baker really has you know kind of that reputation for running around a little bit out there, except. When Baker does it, it's, it's a little more controlled. Whereas with Johnny Manziel, it was pretty much chaos. It was it was look at Mike Evans and if he's co- and if he's covered run, and and I think if we've you know we've watched Baker Mayfield over the course of three years, that is not how he operates whatsoever. So we, we can get more into the 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 football side of it, Lee. I don't want to go too far into it until we get further into the conversation. But um, I, I I really do think it, it's it's mostly Johnny Manziel's. It was it was his emotional and personal baggage that I think was his downfall in, in his first go around in the NFL. And I think the off the field stuff when it comes to Baker Mayfield and comparing him to Johnny Manziel, I think that's where it's it's the most overrated talking point in the comparison between the two players, because you laid out a lot of issues about Manziel that we found out really kind of after the Browns got him and after he kind of flamed out in the NFL. And there were some thoughts and and theories that maybe he had some problems, but there wasn't really concrete until recently. So what I want to do, though, is touch on that more because Mayfield's off-the-field actions have consisted of him running from the police and being tackled and then arrested, which, of course, is not good. That was dumb. That was bad. It's been more than a year since that happened. It happened in February of 2017. Nothing else has happened to Mayfield off the field. The only other incident was the Kansas game where Mayfield grabbed his junk, yelled profanities at the KU sidelines. I guess that was an on and off field issue in a way to some extent depending on how you look at it the Kansas thing though we've discussed on this podcast it was a stupid move by him but the whole story I believe was blown way out of proportion that's it really for Baker Mayfield that I can think of off the top of my head as for Johnny Manziel though to add to the points you made a second ago I went back to look at all of his Texas A&M college related off the field incidents and it's it's a lot of stuff, and some of these you probably remember, some of these you probably don't. Let's start with summer of 2012. Manziel was arrested at Northgate, which is the bar scene at Texas A&M. It's, it's like campus corner for OU, if, if you've been to OU and, and Norman. Yeah, he was arrested for being involved in a fight and producing a fake ID in the summer of 2013, so a year later. And this is, okay, whatever, this isn't that big of a deal, but it it's more of a big deal when you know the kind of guy he is. He tweeted out that he just couldn't wait to get out of College Station whenever that may be because he got a parking ticket. Okay, that's not that big of a deal, but it's, it's something. And later that summer, he was kicked out of a Texas frat party. I'm sure you probably remember that. Uh, I mean, he was Manziel at a Texas frat party for some reason. Got kicked out. And then we start to get to more of the uh, little more serious uh, incidents off the field. Late, also in the summer of 2013, really the year 2013 was not good for him. You remember this, Grant? He left the Manning Passing Academy early, and that was after he showed up late to the academy, and apparently he felt ill and dehydrated. And later on, he was asked if it was related to alcohol at all, and Manziel insisted that he was absolutely not hungover. Years later now, we know more about Manziel. I think it's pretty fair to think that he was hungover. I mean... He was dehydrated in the summer at a Manning Passing Academy and didn't show up on time. Uh, professional athletes or high-level athletes don't just get dehydrated. So that was not good. Also, later in the fall, of course, 
the big one, he was suspended for the first half against Rice for breaking NCAA rules. This was that whole autograph scandal thing with Manziel. The NCAA could not prove that Manziel got paid thousands of dollars for his autographs, but the NCAA could prove that Manziel knew his autographs would be sold, so the compromise ended up being that he was suspended for a half, which the ultimate slap in the wrist, uh, especially going against Rice. And then later on that season, he was in Las Vegas for his 21st birthday party. That was in December of 2013. Uh, not a lot of details out on what happened there, but it's Vegas. It's Johnny Manziel, so... You fill in the rest, especially now we know a lot more about him. Uh, but to be fair, AM did go on and beat Duke in the Chick-fil-A Bowl a few weeks later. So it's not like he went to Vegas and his team got blown out three weeks later in the bowl game. But anyways, point being, a lot more red flags for Johnny Manziel than Baker Mayfield. And it's not even really close at all. It's not. I want to add I want to add something else too. And this is um this was an incident that happened while he was in the NFL, and I think I think Johnny Manziel himself has actually come out and discussed this publicly now, ever since he's been more in the limelight now discussing kind of his, his mental health issues. But remember, his rookie season in Cleveland, um, he I think he he started like six or seven games that season, and then he got hurt, and he didn't uh, the last couple games of the season he didn't uh, he didn't play. Well, on Saturday, on the Saturday before the final Sunday of the season, Manziel, of course, was supposed to be at the team facility for the game on Sunday, but he he flew to Vegas randomly on that Saturday night, and he ended up just staying there and just not showing up to the game the next day. Do you, do you remember? <laughs> and, yeah. And, I mean, that's that that's that's the type of person that we're dealing with here. And I think, you know, if if, if Baker Mayfield has has you know has done things like that, I, I mean, I don't know about him. Um, so it's. I mean, do, do you have any idea how flaky that is? Uh, this yeah, is a- it's, it's incredibly flaky. And and this is more of, you know, once he got drafted and was in the NFL, I was I just wanted to make sure to go back to all the college stuff because that's where we are with Baker Mayfield and is he hasn't gotten drafted yet. So just to this point in Baker Mayfield's career, he hasn't been drafted. But at this point in Johnny Manziel's career, he had all these issues. And it's just it's laughable to even – really compare the two players when it comes to off the field stuff because again yes the the arrest is bad for Mayfield not going to make any excuses for that I know I've heard people say oh you know you're in college you know people get arrested all the time for that in college you know what I didn't you didn't it's you, it's dumb it's dumb it's it's easy to not get arrested and he did it's very but, easy I can't that's I that's a very good point you just made there Lee and I just want to highlight it one more time for everyone listening I can't explain to you and our listeners how easy it is not to get arrested. So I, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it does not yeah. require any effort really at all. So let's just, let's put that down. And like, it's, it, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not okay that Baker Mayfield got arrested. Okay. I, I and think so. I, I mean, that's the big comparison as both Baker Mayfield and Johnny Manziel, they both did get arrested in college. So that happened both, both related to alcohol each circumstance and both were uh, I can't remember I'm sure Texas A&M gave him discipline internally and I know that was the thing with Oklahoma as well he had internal discipline and then of course with the Kansas thing he was disciplined and he didn't start against West Virginia on senior day talking about Mayfield of course Um, so anyway yeah the the arrest I'm not making excuses we're not going to make excuses for an arrest that was dumb but outside of that again it happened more than a year ago everything else with Baker Mayfield is really not been a big deal and certainly does not compare at all to Johnny Manziel. Let's just let's just say this. Kind of Baker's kind of on his on his rap sheet, kind of the third thing on his rap sheet is 
um, is, is planting the flag at the end of the game against Ohio State and Columbus, whereas the third thing on Johnny Manziel's rap sheet is like is is like cocaine possession. So well, again, that's know, I, after that was after Texas A and M though. Okay, sure, but you know, if we're talking I, about college, the third thing on his rap sheet would probably be, let's see, the the number one thing is the autograph stuff but because I, I mean. But also, yeah. I mean, if he's if if he was caught on camera doing cocaine while he was in the NFL, sorry, but he didn't do cocaine for the first time when he was in the NFL. So, yeah. well, we don't and, know and, and sure. I, I know that's conjecture, and so yeah, we'll we'll strike that. I can't I can't prove that. Yeah, you can't prove like that. that. So, um, yeah. So well, let me go I, I mean, back. The number one my, thing, obviously, for my Manziel point is stands. the arrest. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know. We just we know a lot more about Manziel now than we did. You know, hopefully, five years from now, we don't look back and think wow we didn't know all this about baker mayfield and in, in a negative sense i just don't think it's going to happen because i feel like there'd be a lot more red flags i think it's fairly obvious at this point why johnny menzel fell so far in the first round when he did in that draft i, I think i even even at the time I, I thought it was i thought teams were crazy not taking him mm-hmm. uh but i i think you know if, if i would have known about a lot of this stuff at the time which i would assume you know i would assume the nfl teams probably knew more you know, back then than we do now, even about his college days. Um, it's not, it's not hard to imagine why he fell so much. Johnny Manziel is a, and it's, you know, I, I give credit to him. He's, he's, he, it looks like he's, he's publicly owning up his mistakes. Um, and he, he's, it looks like he's working to, to rectify them. He's working on a comeback to the lead. And so obviously I want, I mean, obviously you wish him the best in that and you want him to succeed in that. But at the same time, I mean, he was, he's a really messed up kid coming in the NFL and, and I don't I, I I'm just not sure you could classify Baker Mayfield as a, as a messed up kid he's fiery yes um but I you know I I'm not sure if he's suffering from bipolar disorder and also remember too the Browns had I believe I'm looking back at the Wikipedia page in that first round of the NFL draft in 2014 they took Justin Gilbert with their first pick and then it looks like they traded the ninth pick, the Vikings ended up getting Anthony Barr. But anyways, it looks like, maybe not. I, I had some in my mind that they picked two players in the first round before they picked Manziel. It looks like they just took Justin Gilbert, and then later in the draft, in the first round, they took Manziel. So it's not like the, the Browns were jumping all over themselves to get Manziel. I mean, they drafted somebody ahead of you know before him in the first round, and finally he dropped all the way to the the 22nd pick overall uh the other quarterbacks taken ahead of him not a great quarterback class at all I believe just Blake Bortles and that's yeah I mean that was the only other quarterback taken before Johnny Manziel bang what an amazing class there's got to be there's got to be someone who's competent from that class that we're not thinking of Teddy Bridgewater was drafted with the last pick of the first round and uh, Teddy Bridgewater to me is just a guy Uh, uh yeah he is yeah that would that would probably offend a lot of Vikings fans here for some reason uh, but yeah, even even when he was healthy and starting, he was he was the definition of just a guy. <laughs> Here we go, Grant. Second round, Patriots. Jimmy Garoppolo. Garoppolo. There you go. And yeah, I, I mean, I think Garoppolo is and Garoppolo is good. Stud. Man. Yeah, he's, he's good, really man. good. And just those. I know we're kind of going off on a random tangent. Just those first few games he started when Brady was suspended like a year or two ago, and and then he tore his ACL. I mean, he looked like Tom Brady in those games, and. So, anyways, uh, Garoppolo is good. So let's let's get we're getting off topic. Back to back to the the rest of these questions. Um, one of the first questions that Sam asked was, 
do you think that Mayfield will be able to succeed? And I mean, that's kind of an overarching type question. Uh, my first thoughts on that is, I mean, of course, you and I do think that. Uh, but like we've been saying for a while, fit is incredibly important. I don't like the idea of Johnny Manziel. Um, not, I'm sorry, not Manziel, of course. I don't like the idea of Mayfield going to a team with a defensive minded head coach and a mock draft I saw this week that just came out from uh, Yahoo Sports has the Jets, who just traded up to get to the third pick, has the Jets taking Mayfield with that third pick. I don't like the idea of Mayfield going to New York with Todd Bowles as the head coach. I think Todd Bowles it might be a lame duck head coach. I, I'm kind of surprised. I thought he was kind of on the hot seat last year, maybe even the year before. I'm not 100% certain about their offensive coordinator, but uh, the 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 Jets for Baker Mayfield, I would certainly have some worries. Let's put it that way. How would you feel about that? Yeah, it's the same. I mean, I, I'm. I would prefer that he that he don't go to a uh, to a defensive minded team, but but also at the same time, or defensive minded head coach. But at the same time, I'd much rather him go to the Jets than the Browns. Um, I, I think even even though the Jets, I think historically are are a very very mediocre franchise. Um, Here's where actually I disagree with you on that shockingly I, w- I honestly would be fine with him going to Cleveland at this point because they have Todd Haley at offensive coordinator I completely forgot about Todd Haley that's a good point and also Hugh Jackson is a is an offensive guy I mean he's a he's a he's a running backs I mean he was the running backs coach for the bl- the Bengals and then he was then promoted to offensive coordinator oh so and that's I, oh he was the bank so he so that's why they're they're linked to to Barkley a little bit he likes the or maybe not, or they just like Saquon Barkley, but well, that's probably reading into it a little too much. But um, oh, I just remember Hard Knocks a few years back when the Bengals were on it. Hugh Jackson was the running backs coach for the Bengals, and I think the next year he was promoted to offensive coordinator, and then he ended up getting the Cleveland job. Uh, and honestly, with the offense in Cleveland, I, since he was like you know a former offensive coordinator, I, he didn't. The Browns' offense has been ugh. like I, I get that it's the Browns, but man, he. Hugh Jackson has not done well at all in Cleveland. I mean, he's won one game in two seasons. And I know it's the Browns, but that's really bad. That's really bad. So, I mean, they're going to give him an extra year. Todd Haley has a weird background because I guess he didn't get along with Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, the guy, I think he's been in bar fights and stuff like that. Weird dude, sounds like. But at least he's got a decent track record as an offensive coach. So I would not be totally opposed with Mayfield in Cleveland because at least Haley has had some success coaching a Ben Roethlisberger and has had some success coaching offenses at a decently high level. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I continue to think um, the the and and I've I've slightly shifted on this. I'm I'm I, I think by far the two best fits for him are New Orleans and Miami. Um, I, I'm starting to lean more towards Miami. I think Miami is just a great fit for Mayfield. Um, I, I'm, I Adam Gaze is a guy who, um, who Peyton Manning has has talked very highly of. Uh, he was Peyton Manning's quarterback coach, even though it was probably it might have been vice versa. Peyton Manning might have been coaching, you know, uh, might have been coaching Adam Gaze. But I, I you know, I he's done a. He, I think he did a good job with with uh, with Tannehill when he's been healthy. Um, Lee, this is when you drop in your snide Jay Cutler remark. Um, but you know, I I just think I, I I really like the idea of a of a quarterback guy like Adam Gase just kind of taking Baker Mayfield under his wing and building a franchise with him. And and the Dolphins are are a team that, um, you know, historically have a lot of tradition at the quarterback position with Dan Marino, and, and I just think that would be a great fit for for Baker. And also, obviously, you know, with uh, 
pipe dream at this point in time because it's not going to happen. But him being with Sean Payton in New Orleans as as kind of the heir apparent to Drew Brees would, would I think just be really cool. But that's that's not going to happen anymore. Yeah, no, I agree. I think those are two great fits as well. Uh, even though I'm not fully sold on Adam Gase, he is an offensive guy, so that's that's a plus. And like I said, I think last week, Gase has never had a quarterback in the NFL with the potential and talent that Mayfield has. Tannehill was a wide receiver for a lot of his college days, and he just happens to be a great athlete who has a good arm. Uh, as a quarterback, Baker Mayfield's more talented than Ryan Tannehill, and uh, also more talented than Jay Cutler, with the exception of Cutler just has a bigger arm. But Cutler, outside of that, Mayfield by far a lot, a lot more potential than than Cutler. So uh, good fits all the way around. Back to this question we got from Facebook. There's a, three more additional questions when asking about Baker Mayfield's future. First one, and I think this is a this is a good question. Will Mayfield have a problem losing in the NFL when he has spent so much time during his college career beating up on Texas Tech and the rest of the Big 12? So I will answer that question with, like I said, I think it's a pretty it's a it's a fair to wonder. It's fair to wonder how Mayfield will react to failure in the NFL because he's won a ton at every level. There's a legitimate shot that he'll be drafted by a garbage team that needs a lot of help. But at the same time, though. You could say the same thing about Sam Darnold, Josh Allen, and Josh Rosen as well. I mean, none of those guys won as much in college as Mayfield won. And the Pac-12 wasn't a world beater the past couple of years, two, three years. I mean, Washington has been the best team in that conference now for the last two seasons, not even USC, not UCLA. So uh, the same question marks should be put on those guys as well. But to bring it back to Mayfield and Manziel, I think it's clear that Baker is much more prepared to deal with adversity in the NFL compared to Johnny Manziel. Mayfield is a much more polished quarterback in the pocket than Manziel. He's more accurate than Manziel, has a better arm than Manziel, and I think maturity is certainly at a higher level than Johnny Manziel as well. So uh, if you're going to compare the two guys there, I, again, I think it's, it's not even really a comparison between Mayfield and Manziel. What are your thoughts? I mean, and also... I guess to answer the question, um, about, will he have a problem losing once he inevitably does lose? Because he will in the NFL. Um, I don't know. To, to be determined. I, I would like to think that he won't. I, I would like to think he's going to go into this with the right you know, mindset. And of course, he never wants to lose. But I, I think he should obviously be going into this this upcoming season with the mindset. Hey, I'm getting I'm likely going to be drafted by a team, you know, in the in the top 10. It's very likely that we're going to have some hard times this year. I think that's just being realistic. And he should be prepared for that mentally. So um, ho- yeah, ho- I mean, hopefully, I, I would hope he won't have a problem losing. Um, in, in terms of back to the Manziel comparison. Um, yeah, I just think Baker Mayfield is just, is just much more developed in a lot of part of his games, mostly. Um, and I, I I think you hear you hear this a lot from um, from kind of more of the more uh, honest scouts out there. Um, and the first thing they always talk about when you compare these two is is how well Baker Mayfield plays within like within the designed play, whereas Johnny Manziel was more of just kind of a schoolyard guy. He he didn't really follow the bases of the play at all. Uh, like I said, it was it was Mike Evans, and if he's not open, then just start running around. Whereas Baker is is much more in control of the offense. Um, and, and also, I, I want to just go back to how 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 good Baker is at, at, at manipulating defenders with his eyes, um, looking off safeties and whatnot. I I made the comment, I think, last week or a couple weeks ago that I, I don't think there's 15 quarterbacks in the NFL right now who are better than him at that. So um, there, there, just just a lot of things. His footwork's a lot better. He's much more comfortable within the pocket. He's got a stronger arm. Um, he's uh, 
he's much better at, like I say, he's much better at stepping up in the pocket um, instead of just taking off and running like Johnny Manziel would. Um, and as a leader, too, uh, just as a leader. And, and I'm sure Johnny Manziel was a fiery guy and an infectious guy in college, but but I think it's it's a lot easier to respect a guy like Baker, um, especially when you know he's not out doing cocaine. Ah, I shouldn't have said that again, but <laughs> still, it's um, not fair. Not fair. Just just solely in the reputation of Johnny Manziel. I, Johnny, I mean, any it's, it's 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 pretty uh, without any. Johnny Manziel in college was a piece of s. I mean, that's it's pretty. That's, I think that's fairly clear right now. And that's you know what. And as a and you know what the the thing with Johnny though is a lot of twenty and twenty one year old kids from his background with you know with his background a lot of them would be pieces of crap in college too um so i he's i i think he's gonna get better as a human being and we can touch on that you know some other time but if i i just at at this point in time it's it's nearly it's it's like it's almost slanderous to compare those two uh, personalities i I just i don't they, they could not be any more different well, the rest of these questions from Sam from Facebook are, are more just about Baker Mayfield, not necessarily the Johnny Manziel comparison. He's got two more questions that he wants to ask. And again, I think this is another good question that he brings up. Mayfield's performance, especially in the second half against a tough SEC Georgia defense, was that telling or was that a fluke? And I'm sure what he means by that is Mayfield certainly did not play as well in the second half as he played in the first half against Georgia. You know, as I've watched again, I've watched that that game a decent amount of times. Um, I I do think it's telling. Actually, it it tell it told me that Mayfield was incredibly prepared, and so was Lincoln Riley going into the game. But for whatever reason, second half adjustments were not up to par in that game, like they had been in other games that season. And what Georgia did, and it was it was clear, is is Georgia manned up against guys. All the receivers and played a single high safety a lot of that second half. Every once in a while, for the most part, they would disguise it though as like a, a two man setup, but it really wasn't ever two man. I mean, here and there, I'm sure it was, but they would disguise their defense well. And there was times when Mayfield stared players down. He didn't make the right reads, and that was telling. But again, that's a guy that, yes, he had a lot of experience in college. Georgia's defense though is very very good. And they played better than him in that second half, for the most part, with the exception of that that one drive where he they were able to score a touchdown. And he found Dimitri Flowers on that nice play, but uh, yeah, I I wouldn't downright call that a fluky second half. I think Georgia outschemed Oklahoma a lot, and Baker Mayfield hopefully learned a lot from that second half because obviously the defenses in the NFL are going to be a lot better, and he's going to have to make a lot more in-game adjustments than he did in that that Rose Bowl game. What did you see? Uh, some observations here, Lee. So just because I, I did, I did just go back and I watched it today. So I, I have some pretty fresh thoughts, uh, with what you said. So I had, you know, I, I haven't gone, I hadn't gone back and watched the full thing until today. So this was something that I had just suspected, but I, but I wasn't 100% sure of, I wanted to see it on tape. Lee, that was, that was the worst game. I think Baker Mayfield played in all of the, the entire season. Uh, he missed, he, he missed a lot of throws in that game. Um, or at least and by missing, I mean, he just, he just didn't, he didn't have the accuracy or the pinpoint accuracy, uh, that we're, that we're used to seeing there, there was something not right with him in that game. I wouldn't be surprised if he was still sick. Um, there's just something, there was something off with him in that game in, in terms of his accuracy and whatnot. Also the second observation, this is more from the second half and you're right. The, the Georgia defense just flat out balled out in the second half of that game. And I'm even, 
I would even go as far as saying Lee, and this was this was the thing. This was the biggest thing that's that stood out to me from a player standpoint when I went back and watched the second half. Roquan Smith won that game for Georgia. He was he was the like he he was uh, he wasn't the only reason, but he was the main reason why their defense was so good in in the second half. He, I, I just that guy is insane. He 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 was mm-hmm. so he just mm-hmm. he 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 single handedly destroyed at least ten plays that that I think that I that I think would have worked against anyone else in the country. Um, so Roquan Smith, sometimes you just got to take your hat off. And I think I, I had said after the game that Roquan Smith was maybe the best college linebacker I, I've ever seen. And I watching the second half of the Rose Bowl tape did not dispel that notion in my mind whatsoever. That guy is absolutely insane. That is an insanely good football player. Um, I, I, I can't believe he's not being discussed as like as a top five pick. He's that good. I can't remember if I discussed this on the podcast last week. Did I talk about Mike Mayock and Lincoln Riley discussing Roquan Smith on the podcast, or was that no, just you and me? Talking? That was that was you and me. And I know, um, yeah, and I I know what play you're talking about now because I did. I, I watched. Um, so what I did is I, I watched the last two series of the first half, and then I watched the second half, and then overtime. Um, and so yeah, on the on the last touchdown of, of the first half, when when Baker caught the touchdown pass, um, Roquan Smith made an absolutely incredible read on that play, and it's almost instantaneous. As soon as Baker pitches the ball to Flowers, Baker just kind of starts to trot off to the side. Roquan Smith follows him immediately immediately he it's like no there's not even any hesitation he immediately follows baker mayfield and and i think so what what may what mayock and lincoln riley were talking about last week was i think riley made a comment that there were there was a play where where roquan smith just didn't even have a read on the play and yet he still went to the exact spot he needed to go i'm assuming it was the it was the mayfield touchdown catch is what he was talking about that that was it so just to, to back up i I overheard Lincoln Riley and Mike Mayock from the NFL Network talking about X's and O's in, in football, which I would have loved to hear a lot more, but I was kind of eavesdropping a bit, I, I must admit. But that was one of the things I definitely heard was Roquan Smith was brought up and Riley mentioned that play when, when Baker got the touchdown pass and, and Riley said, you know what, it's amazing what that guy could do because he had no reads on that play and still almost almost disrupted that play and it, it didn't happen and and the only thing I can think of now that, that you talk about watching it over I'm gonna guess that Smith his job on that play was probably to spy Mayfield because that's the only thing that makes sense if he was following Mayfield even though he had just kind of been trotting uh, I, I can't imagine if he wasn't assigned to spying Mayfield on that play and he still was able to to look that good, uh, wow, that's that's super surprising. You're, you're, you, yeah, you, you have to be right on that play, but uh, you got to remember though that play was from like the three yard line. Um, I'm not sure if you would you would typically spy a quarterback that close to the goal line. Um, still, an amazing Ro- Roquan Smith had just the closing speed on that guy um, is insane, and so the uh, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get into overtime. But the the play he made on that on that Jordan Smallwood jet sweep was incredible. So, um, yeah, that's the iconic Roquan Smith blowing up Oklahoma season play of that game. He had more than that one, but that's the one that really stands out. And, and then also, too, Lee, I did want to the, the offensive line, especially the interior in the second half of that game, did not play well. Um, Mayfield was running for his life a lot of the second half. Well, we'll, uh, we'll touch on that later on. The last part of this Facebook question from Sam, he says, and this is 
again, kind of an interesting question that I had not even really considered. He says, can you name one quarterback who is known for talking smack in the NFL and who has also been successful? So off the top of my head, I was thinking, I I don't know. I mean, the first person yes. I thought of was was Cam Newton because Cam Newton, I, I, I know he talks a lot, and of course he won the MVP that year. But I did also Google just trash-talking quarterbacks NFL just because I wanted to get some – some info on this, and before I mention what I'm going to say, Grant, what were you going to say? Because it sounds like you have at least one person in Isn't mind. Isn't Aaron Rodgers a notorious trash talker? I'm pretty sure he is. So I found this article on ESPN dated October of last year, so in the middle of the season, and it looks like it's one of those player polls where they they pull players in the NFL. These are the best ones, yeah, because they're yeah, honest. It, right, right. So the first question is, which quarterback talks the most trash? And the very first one, actually, is Cam Newton at 26%. Third down the list is Aaron Rodgers, the guy that you mentioned. So Aaron Rodgers, of course, has had incredible success in the NFL. Uh, the other guy that I thought of in my, in my head before I even Googled this was Phillip Rivers, and Phillip Rivers is the second on this list behind Cam Newton. I remember always hearing stories about how Phillip Rivers talks a lot of trash, but he never says any bad words. It's, it's very clean. Have you heard that as well? Yes, I have. <laughs> Phillip Rivers is, a, is, is just a, is a goober, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's obviously never won a Super Bowl, but Phillip Rivers is definitely one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And I like still watching him day, play. He still he's is. good. And he's a guy that coming out of college in his first couple of years, I was like, ah, Phillip Rivers, nah, he's not that great. Uh, I've, I've learned to really appreciate his game, and I, I think he is really good. Uh, not just that matters what I think. I mean, the stats and the way he plays back stuff, he just happens to play for the Chargers, and uh, that that's a that's a tough franchise. Uh, so Cam Newton, Phillip Rivers, Aaron Rodgers, the top three. Number four. Tom Brady. Tom Brady, 16% of players said that Tom Brady talks trash. So I'd say he's a pretty successful quarterback as well. So maybe these guys all talk smack, but they don't really get all the publicity for talking smack because I I don't know, maybe in the NFL just a lot of players just talk trash and it's just what they I, do. Yeah, I don't know. I, I was going to say, I, I don't think that that's really like a, a phenomenon. of. I, I think there is, there is so much trash, uh, trash talking in the NFL. Like I mean, it's every single play, every whistle. So I, I don't, I don't know. I, I understand you want your quarterback to act a certain way, but like I said, Aaron Rodgers was the first person that came to my mind because I, I remember tons of anecdotes over the years saying that he is just a major trash talker. So and he's, you know, for, for my money, he's he's the best in the game right now. So I mean, and just real quick before we move on to the next topic, uh, just to back up all of my thoughts on Jay Cutler, uh, one of the questions on this grant is. Who's the one quarterback you would not want as a teammate? A whopping 42% of people say Jay Cutler. And one of the quotes on here is one current Dolphins. Uh, okay. One player says, quote, I'm not even sure he wants to play. How many times have I said that? He doesn't care. Jay Cutler just doesn't care. Yeah. I mean, you, you, I, may, I be, you may be right. Years. You may be right, but he was still better than Luke McCown or whatever it was. I don't mean. Josh don't... McCown. No, no, he wasn't. Not at that particular time. Josh I mean, McCown was the reason why that Oklahoma, I almost said Oklahoma, uh, the Bears offense played as well, and then they didn't want to do the thing where you lose your job due to injury, and they brought Cutler back, and I think he won the first game, but after that, they just tanked and were bad. But it didn't matter anyways, because the Bears defense that season was historically bad. So Who even cares? Nobody cares about Chicago Bears football. Man. All right. Uh, okay, back to, uh, <laughs> back to, yeah, you're right, back to Mayfield. I think that that covers it. Um, any other 
you know what? We've gone pretty long on that. We'll just get to the next thing. Uh, before we do talk Rose Bowl overtime, because I have a feeling that we might talk about that for a little bit too long. Let's just quickly discuss Oklahoma basketball. Uh, if you're an Oklahoma football fan and you don't want to hear about the Rose Bowl and you don't care about Oklahoma basketball, well, thanks for listening. That's the pod for today. But if you want to hear more about Oklahoma basketball and the Rose Bowl, keep listening. Of course, Oklahoma loses to Rhode Island last Thursday in the very first game of the NCAA tournament. And then today, as we're uh, the day we record this on Tuesday, Trey Young declares for the NBA draft, as we all figured he would. Uh, so the Oklahoma basketball season is now officially over. Trey Young is leaving. And it went by really fast, but at the same time, it also went by incredibly slow because of how poorly the team played for the last two and a half months of the year. And I'll be honest with you, Grant, I am happy it's over and I'm ready to absolutely move on from that. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I, I'm actually I, I I feel the same way. I was I was kind of disappointed um, at when the game was over, just because they did make it interesting, and um, you know, I mean, it, it still would have been fun. And you you remember what I said? They were Trey Young hit that hit that three with like uh, with like 70 seconds left to give them the one point lead, and then in my head I'm thinking, oh sweet, you know, we're finally gonna I'm finally gonna get like a dramatic win you know in in march madness or something at the end didn't work out but i gotta tell you 24 hours later i i just i i I am i'm glad the season's over uh it was just a it it was a really difficult last half of the year it's just it it was it was exhausting and um i'm it's time to move on this was a really really weird season of ou basketball and i think um i I think it's 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 really just kind of time to you know to forget about it and move on because because this this is a team that that potentially has a very, very big talent gap um, on the horizon here, and they gotta, they really gotta find a way to to replenish this roster with better players. And um, it's, it, I, I hope, I hope this year was maybe just was was an outlier and everything, but we'll uh, we'll see because they 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 do look like they are lacking some some high end talent, and not even high end talent, just talent in general just general talent yeah I mean uh to his credit Trey I thought played really well in that Rhode Island game I thought he made a lot of nice plays and and he did what he's kind of been doing a lot of the year he played under control he I guess you could say he took a couple bad shots some deep threes but really I mean that's what he does I mean whenever there's not many other people on the team that can make a lot of threes so I don't necessarily get that mad whenever Trey Young takes those deep threes especially you know whenever you see him make one or two you're like okay well I guess he might make can we can we analyze that thing that you just said? You said, oh, there's not really anyone else on the team who can make a ton of threes. Three months ago, this was the best three-point shooting team in college <laughs> basketball. How insane is that? Yeah. And then, that and just they, shows how, like, how volatile the game of basketball can be, though. It's just, and then, and then they, just, they, they turned into one of the worst shooting teams in the country. It's, it's insane. And that, was, and, and that was the reason they lost. They, they, they lost Rhode Island because they did not shoot well from three. I, I thought that uh, that was the difference in the game. I thought OU outplayed Ro- Rhode Island slightly in, in, in every other at, uh, facet of the game, except they just they, they didn't make as many shots uh, from the outside as Rhode Island did. I was shocked to see that Oklahoma out-rebounded Rhode Island, I think, by about 13, because I it really seemed like there was a, a handful of instances where Rhode Island out-hustled and, and got critical offensive rebounds that Oklahoma should have gotten whether it be in the first half or the second half of that game, that ended up turning into points for Rhode Island that may have ended up biting Oklahoma in the in the end. So to me, it seemed like Rhode Island actually did better on the boards than the stats bared. Uh, I was wondering if, if you felt that way or was that just me? No, I, that was just I think we, we differed quite a bit on our thoughts from this game. I, I, thought, I thought OU as a whole outside of them 
shooting poorly. I thought this was the best game they've played in 2018, um, or at least the best game they've played since they beat Kansas uh, in the early part of January. So um, I, I just they, they just didn't make open shots from the outside, and sometimes uh, sometimes they go in, sometimes they don't. But but I thought I thought the effort on defense was was better than anything we've seen this entire season. I was pleased with that. Um, I, I I didn't see any egregious examples of them being out hustled. I think there was maybe one in the first four minutes of the game where a guy. Uh, one of their guys got an offensive rebound amongst three guys, uh, three OU guys who were just looking up at the rim. But other than that, I, I thought, I, I thought they actually tried in this game, and I thought, I think in the end, I think Rhode Island just a better team, uh, as which is which is I think is scary going forward because I don't think Rhode Island really is that good of a team. So, um, in in a down year of college basketball. That that Rhode Island team, I think, in a in a regular year of college basketball, is, is not a tournament team. But you can obviously say the same thing about OU this year. Yeah, I, in a in a way, I think Oklahoma did itself a favor by not winning that game because Duke would have absolutely embarrassed that Sooners team. Uh, that Rhode Island team is not very good, and Duke embarrassed that Rhode Island team. I, I think I think Duke would have beaten Oklahoma by at least twenty points. If, I mean, they beat Rhode Island by twenty. So it, 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 it would have been it probably would have been very similar to the Rhode Island game. I mean, it would have been it would have been interesting to see what Trey Young did, though. And I mean, it might have looked a lot like that second KU game in Lawrence where Oklahoma was just incredibly outmatched. And and, uh, you know, I think they put up like 70 points. But did Kansas put up like 100? I, I, yeah, I, I, I think it, it may have that game could have been interesting, especially with Duke in their zone. Um, it, it would have been interesting to see how they would have guarded Trey just because you know, you you saw a lot of on ball pressure this year on him and, and whatnot. It would, I would have been. Yeah, curious that's a good to, point. I would have been curious to see if, if Duke would have would have tried to do that. Um, and if not, then it would have been really fun to watch Trey try to attack that zone. But um, I mean, I guess in theory, Trey could have gotten hot in, against the zone because what does the zone do? The zone's like, hey, we'll let you shoot from the outside. If if Trey Young starts just making shots from the outside and. You know, actually, the game could have been more fun because I just don't think Rhode Island was a very good shooting basketball team. I mean, they Duke, couldn't make anything from Duke the outside. does have a lot of size and length on on the perimeter there, though. So even if you are able to get a semi open shot, that length um, and size can can close very very quickly. That's why Syracuse is so good um, in the tournament because they can guard the perimeter so well like that. So you know, it's 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 hard to know what would have happened, but yeah, I mean, they they probably would have gotten run off the court by Duke, especially now where it seems. I, I think a lot of people are are twisting themselves into the ground trying to figure out who's going to win this thing when I think it's slapping us in the face hard right now that I think Duke is just going to run away with this thing. Like I, I'm talking about... Well, I keep about, hearing that Villanova is the best team. I haven't watched a whole lot of Villanova really at all, so I'm curious to go back and watch a couple of the first-round games. Gonna be but, uh, I, oh, sorry. I watched that Duke-Rhode Island game, and Duke looked awesome. I mean, I just they look like such a complete team offensively, defensively. I, I yeah, Not to pat myself on the back too much, but I had Duke winning it all in my bracket, which nobody cares about but i'm still sticking with duke today to win well i i think people are i think people might be surprised how how good of a game west virginia is going to give villanova or maybe not surprised but i i think it's a game that west virginia can absolutely win villanova is a guard oriented team west virginia absolutely demolishes guard oriented teams uh, that's where they make their money so um especially defending the perimeter like that. And I know, obviously, you want a, gar- a guard-oriented team is going to be better uh, situated to deal with their press, but the way that Javon Carter uh, guards on the perimeter is is sick. And so Villanova is not going to get any easy shots on the perimeter. So I think that's going to be a, a very interesting game. 
Real quick, Grant, what do you think uh, about Trey Young's NBA future? Because he'll probably be a lottery pick. I have no idea if he's going to go in the top five or if he's going to fall towards the end of the lottery. I don't. I don't know. I have no idea how this guy's going to be in the NBA because uh, it just he's such a weird a weird season. But I know the the Steph Curry comparisons are real, and even though it's just one season for Trey Young, which I guess in theory that might be a, a disadvantage to him because Steph had a couple years in college to to improve, I guess. Um, I, I think after one year of college, wouldn't wouldn't it be kind of crazy to to say that Steph Curry was ahead of Trey Young after Curry's first year of college? I mean, Trey Young has played a lot better competition. He led the country, I believe, in what points and assists as a freshman. I know the game has changed a bit and and Trey dominated the basketball, but I, I I don't know. I mean, Young could certainly turn out to be one of these sharp shooting point guards in the NBA and, and maybe be a perennial all star like Steph Curry. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I think his 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 floor game is it's much more ahead of his shooting ability right now. Um, I, I think I, we saw that flurry in the first half of the season. I think that was a bit of a fluke from him. Um, he, he kind of reverted back to him. He, he he's, I, I think starting out in the NBA, he's a spot up shooter, but having said that, I think he's, his, his floor general game is great. Uh, he's, I, I, he, I think he's a guy who can step in the NBA right now and be a, a he's very got a viable handle. point guard. He's got a, he's fake, got, a got a great, great handle and he's, yeah. I mean, some, some of the, some of the passes he drops are absolutely insane. Um, and mm-hmm. just, you know, yeah, c- c- converting those passes in the NBA just won't be a problem. So I, he, he's a guy who I think is going to have a lot of uh, struggles, obviously defensively, uh, right away in the NBA. But as a guy who can run your offense, I think uh, he, he's going to be a, an asset right away in the NBA. I think he, he's always going to be someone who, who's going to be capable of that. I think he needs to go somewhere, which, I mean, this is going to happen because it's the NBA and now everybody's going to be really good. I think he needs to go somewhere where he's not the focal point and the main guy just to take some pressure off of him because he's been this, this main guy. He's been the center of attention ever since high school. I'm sure ever since he was younger. Uh, of course, the one year at Oklahoma. I think he needs to go somewhere where he doesn't have to carry everybody, and he can just focus more on his own game and not ha- having to worry about everybody else. Uh, you know, I guess rising up to his level. I and agree. I just, I, I, yeah, I think that would be. I think he he would be really uh, beneficial from just kind of for the first time, probably in his entire life, going somewhere where he's not the main focal point of a team. And I think that's where just kind of the modern composition of the NBA really works in his favor, just because just sort of the game right now in professional basketball is your point guard is more of a distributor and a spot up three point shooter, um, getting the ball to the wings and the other guys who can um, who can shoot from the outside. So um, I, I, I really I, I think it's likely that he's going to step into a situation where he's not the number one guy. And, I, and you're right. I, I think that will benefit him a lot. I, I think it'll be it'll just be nice for him not to be double teamed on every single play, I think. All right, let's talk overtime of the Rose Bowl nearly three months after it happened. And the reason why we bring this up is because I prompted Grant. I said, hey, I just watched the coaches film version from ESPN of overtime for Oklahoma. And I just watched the offense. I didn't watch any of the defense because the defense just did not look very good. So I there's no value of that to me. But I wanted to watch the offense because there were some plays I remember that I would have loved to hear the coach's thoughts on in that Rose Bowl. And back when it happened in January, I didn't get a chance to watch this because my recording on my DVR stopped before overtime. So I finally went back and watched it. I took notes on every single offensive play. 
I got Grant to watch it as well, and I guess he ended up watching the Rose Bowl back for the first time. So that's progress. So here we are. We'll talk about what happened in that overtime. Feel free to click off if you want, but I think we got some good stuff here. We'll begin Oklahoma after Georgia had kicked a field goal. So, okay, good for Oklahoma's defense. They got off the field giving up only a field goal in overtime one, which allowed Oklahoma's offense to know, hey, if we score a touchdown here, we win. This and game Lee, is over. Lee, you didn't if, if you didn't watch Georgia's offensive plays though, but they got a gift from missed a what the wide open tight end over the middle of the field on the third down play. That would have it, it would have put I the ball inside the that. ten. He uh yeah, he threw it behind the guy. And yeah. So that, it that was, was the pass over the umpire, right? Where the umpire yeah, was right yeah. in the passing lane. Yep. There was a lot of those. Fromm made a lot of mistakes in that game, by the way. That I noticed when I went through and, and watched it again. There was Fromm played exactly the way I kind of figured he would play. I mean, from watching all that tape of him prior to the game. I mean, he had the his accuracy was not great, but he did have the capabilities of making some throws, which he didn't beat Oklahoma. I mean, he made a, like one or two really nice plays, but for the most part, he missed. Like you said, he missed some throws that put Oklahoma in some good positions defensively. He missed he missed some throws that really uh, afforded OU some opportunities. Easy throws too. Yeah, that really afforded OU the opportunity to to grab momentum especially in the first half um if i'm if i'm remembering correctly so mm-hmm. um well the very first drive of the game where oklahoma i think forced a three and out on third down he just threw a ball at the guy's legs and it was the guy was wide open yeah and that and happened like, oh thanks i mean yeah and and you know what that throw just that bad throw kind of like in the flat that happened at least three or four times where he mm-hmm. missed him out of the mm-hmm. backfield on third down it seems like so um from yeah from was 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 just okay in that game he he wasn't as good as i remember him from being there in person so oklahoma's offense i'm gonna go over all of it and grant you will jump in with your th- do you have thoughts on each play or is that just me <laughs> i well i mean i'm gonna i remember them so i have thoughts on them when you bring them up all right all right so the first obviously first down and 10 ball 25 yard line Oklahoma down by three, needing a field goal to keep overtime going. A touchdown wins it. Rodney Anderson gets a four-yard run on the play. Marquise Brown, we saw this a lot in this game, Grant. We saw Marquise Brown pre-snap motion across the formation from right to left. Now, watching this play, and I think this is something that was pointed out by some of the coaches. I can't remember who it was. If Mayfield would have pulled this, pulled the handoff, and swung it out to Brown in the flat, Brown would have at least gotten 10 yards, at least gotten 10 yards. Might have been a touchdown, yeah. The I mean, only the wide, sorry, sorry, go ahead. The only problem in it with it, Lee, is that Roquan Smith was on him. So I, I mean, I I might say it could have been a touchdown, but dude, I don't I don't know. I mean, if there's if sure, there's, sure. I mean, you know, that's what so. I'm saying. Like he he would have at least though gotten the first down because I mean there is no. I mean, if even if Roquan Smith, which is the best player on the field that day. Um, because the wide receiver on the left side of the formation, it was probably C.D. Lamb. I guess I didn't write that down here because C.D. Lamb was lined up on the left side the entire overtime. Uh, he was blocking the cornerback downfield because, I mean, it was a run play, but it was an RPO. I mean, I, they could use that as an RPO because behind line of scrimmage, Marquise Brown can make those passes even if linemen are up the field. So um, that took the cornerback out of the play. And honestly, from what I watched, I didn't I didn't see Roquan Smith. It was It was the safety. It was the Georgia safety that was moving over to go with Brown one-on-one was it so maybe i maybe i looked at her i'm thinking of a different play because they ran they ran kind of that jet sweep motion on on that that was kind of their their look for the entire game that was kind of their Mm -hmm. base thing that they kept going back to to get uh, georgia thinking during the game 
Mm-hmm. And I, I, it was great. It was I loved it. It was good stuff. I mean, that was an RPO there. It was the first play of the, the overtime, and they handed it to Anderson. Rodney got four yards, so it wasn't a terrible play. I mean, that's decent. Made it second and six, but again, everything is hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, that could have been an even bigger play. So next, now the next snap, it's second and six. Oklahoma, to me, it looked like ran the same exact play as before, but this time they do give it. They give it to Marquise Brown as he's motioning from left to right. So Brown does the pre-snap motion right to left across the formation. Georgia is not in basic man here. They check when Brown goes in motion. And you see the free safety seems to take Brown one-on-one because he runs up and just blows the play up. He knocks Brown out of bounds after only four yards. Again, four yards is not bad. I mean, it sets up a third and two. But this guy totally makes the play because if he was unsure of himself, if he wasn't like, I didn't know what to do uh, and kind of waited to see what was going to happen. Brown would have at the very least gotten the first down in this play, but he was so sure that he was making the right read. He came up and, and knocked the speedy Brown out of bounds. So again, that's two plays back to back where Brown, depending on how the play was ran, could have been a first down for Oklahoma. But instead, now we got third and two instead of a first down and 10, either on first down or on the second down play. Any thoughts on that play? Probably no, I, I no, I, I I just remember thinking it was a good play. The just thing is, that. there's so there's so few plays by Oklahoma's offense in this overtime. That's why I took notes on every single one of them, <laughs> because again, they didn't run a whole lot of plays in overtime. And so here, and but here, here come the the plays that I think a lot of us had problems with. There's, I th- I, th- I think there's two that are going to stand out to most people, and they're on they're on different drives. So, but the one that's going to stand out is is the next one though. And that's third and two. And this is where we see the Jordan Smallwood run. And I got my notes here, Grant. Roquan Smith, awesome play. And also I have all caps in my notes. Why does Oklahoma run this to the short side of the field? At least if Oklahoma runs this play to the wide side, maybe Smallwood can outrun Smith a little bit farther and pick up the first down. This scenario, Smallwood gets close to the sideline so he had to cut it up field where Roquan Smith absolutely drills him backwards, makes the great play. And Gary Patterson makes the comment that Oklahoma has not had a lot of success running side to side against Georgia. Patterson says, quote, why not go back to the two back, use one of the backs to block the end out and then give the ball inside. So Gary Patterson probably thinking what a lot of us were thinking watching the game is man stop trying to go side to side against this georgia defense man if only lincoln riley would have listened to me when i was beating the drum for three weeks before the game saying OU is going to have a lot of success running inside in this game of course i'm, I'm slightly facetiously saying that because they, they well did, the thing is because they, they, they did have a lot of success i know <laughs> they did well they didn't in the second half they had a lot of success in the first half running up the middle well they went away from it a lot in the second half i mean they they still were able to get a lot of chunk yardage plays running the ball up the middle in the second half yeah i was gonna say they, just, uh, they didn't do it enough they didn't do it enough man they were there was there, there weren't the long you know 30 40 yard runs like they had in the first half but they were they were definitely picking up four or five yards a pop running up the middle in the second half um hey you know it's well leave it in overtime the very first play we talked about on this segment four yards okay that's uh, four yards on first down is not bad that's fine and then we'll get to it in the second overtime coming up because, okay, Roquan Smith made that great play. Austin Seibert came out, kicked an incredibly clutch field goal. All all hats off to Austin Seibert for kicking a field goal that if he misses, the game's over and Oklahoma loses. 
But can we so, be? But can we? Can we? Can we step back for a second though? Sure. Every this now this this is me just being a fan now. Everyone, this is not me being a pundit. This is me being a fan. We all we all knew as soon as they as soon as they trotted out Cyber, we knew that OU was going to lose that game. Right? Everyone knew that. Correct. I don't. I wouldn't say everyone knew that OU was going to lose. I would say it's fair to say we all. This is not the smart play. This is this is playing. This is not playing to win. How about that? Yeah, I, I'm just saying if. Yeah, I. I, I but thought, your sentiment is understood. Yeah, they 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 should have gone for it on fourth and inches. Is what I'm saying. And Lincoln Riley was in. I think he commented on this. He was asked about this at a later date or after the game, and he just said that just the risk reward wasn't there for him. He just didn't think the risk of getting a yard or losing the game was was there. I, I'm pretty sure that was the play where he was asked, "Why not go for it on fourth down there?" Yeah, and, so. and I guess where I would be, I guess if I was coming from him, I would have I would have had zero confidence in my defense. Um, so that's that's where I was. I I, I would have. I, I think right. the 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 response after the defense already got you one stop in overtime. Yeah, the responsible thing to do in that situation there, I think, would have been to realize that you have a bad defense and that you cannot. You cannot rely on them in overtime. You need to rely on Baker Mayfield in overtime. Um, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. That's easy to say after the fact, and it's it's a lot. It's I'm sure it's a lot harder to have that train of thought when you're actually on the sideline and you're you have to coach the game. And not to mention, it's his first time ever as the head coach. He's in that super high stress situation. That's why after the game ended, and my opening take was just, I just it's just a terrible time for him to have all these hopeful learning experiences because we can only hope that he just gets better and better from that it just sucks that it happened in that scenario where it was I mean the national championship is a game away and yeah um so cyber kicks the field goal Oklahoma gets the ball back of course because they in overtime now like they get the ball first so now you know as like kind of to your point Oklahoma has the football in your mind you're like thinking okay we have to score a touchdown here because the odds of our defense stopping Georgia again and preventing them from scoring a touchdown especially if Georgia uh needs to score a touchdown uh like you know and gets four cracks at it like probably not going to happen. So I mean we definitely need to score a touchdown here because the uh, what I just said didn't make sense. The thought process should be we got to score a touchdown here because the odds of our defense, Oklahoma's defense, preventing Georgia from scoring another touchdown, two drives in a row, very low. It it only has happened, I think, maybe one time in the entire course of the game where Oklahoma was able to prevent Georgia from scoring touchdowns on consecutive – or prevent them from, from scoring, I think, on consecutive drives maybe once in that game, uh, maybe once or twice. So uh, Yeah, at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the first half, I think. And they, they still got a field goal off that. Oh yeah, that's right. Sorry, forgot about that. Yeah, uh, kind of a big deal. Which they should have never been out there. So anyway, so now we got first and ten. And this is where I'm gonna start getting really technical with football. Oklahoma is in twenty personnel, which means they have two running backs, three wide receivers. Mark Andrews is one of those wide receivers. Sermon is to Mayfield's left. Rodney Anderson is two yards behind Mayfield and one yard to his right. Baker gives to Anderson. Oklahoma's offensive line blocks to the left. But the play design is for Anderson to run through the B gap between the right guard and the right tackle. So they're blocking left, but the play design is to, for him to be kind of running back towards the right a little bit. Now, Anderson gets a nice chunk of yards here. He picks up five yards. You know, pretty good for first down, right? Yeah, of course. But it should have been a bigger play, and Gary Patterson is the only coach who points this out. 
Patterson says Trey Sermon should have gotten a better block on Lorenzo Carter, who was playing left end. When you watch the play, and I'm curious to see what you think on this, Grant, if you notice this, it looks like Sermon is just assuming that Anderson is going to get past the initial level of defense into the secondary or get at least to the linebackers. Therefore, Sermon is looking to block a linebacker downfield, which is too bad because if Sermon would have just engaged with Lorenzo Carter, sealed him, Rodney Anderson would have had a nice hole to run through, and it would have basically been Rodney Anderson one-on-one versus the Georgia strong safety. The strong safety was the only guy separating Rodney from a touchdown. And Gary Patterson pointed it out. It's clear as day on film. They show the all 22. They also show the sky cam film. And it looks like Sermon just kind of dogs it on the play. And and to be clear, though, since Sermon doesn't block Carter very well, Carter is in on the tackle of Anderson. So if Sermon would have sealed him, there's no way that Carter is in on this play. And maybe Rodney makes a play. What did you see on that one? Yeah, no, that was... So, so that would have been one of my plays where I was just, I just kind of threw my hands in the air and I was like, you know, why did I watch this? Cause that, I mean, that's what I was scared of. I was scared of someone like Gary Patterson coming out and saying, Hey, you know, this is, if they would have done this and this, then this could have happened. And, and I just, that's, you know, I, yeah, I, 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 I do think it's interesting just from a purely football um, view, just learning the game and, or studying the game. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's disappointing. I don't like hearing stuff like that. And, and so, you know, we, I, I just don't. And so that's, uh, yeah, I, I saw it's this. so fascinating to me, though. Yeah, it's so I, interesting how you know, I saw, one, I one saw the same play that much. Yeah, I, I saw the same thing on tape. I, I did come away with it questioning, though, is it, was Gary Patterson making it seem a little easier than it really was? Because um, like you said, Trey Sermon did try to get his hands on Lorenzo Carter, just not very aggressively. We have no idea if that is just because Trey Sermon just can't block Lorenzo Carter, you know. So uh, that's why um, I, I, I'd yeah, have to. I mean, if if he was mainly trying to block Carter, though, I think he would have been able to do it. I, I think he was looking downfield because he kind of thought that he was going to try to pave the way farther down the field for Rodney Anderson yeah. past that initial line and, of scrimmage. And sure, but here's and so, and so here's where I here's where I, I think we're falling into a trap. Just like micro, you know, micro analyzing these plays is. You know, this happened against Georgia in the Rose Bowl. Who says that didn't happen on that exact same play 50 other times over the course of the season? You know, it, it probably did. It probably happened against Kansas, probably happened against Texas, probably happened against Texas Tech. So, you know, I mean, I... Yeah, but that's... There's no fun in looking back at those plays, though. Sure. And so I'm just... I'm trying to... It's this. This is why I'm trying not to harp just on on the small details like this because really, really, what happened in that game? You know what the story of that game was? Georgia's defense played out of their freaking minds in the second half. That's what happened in the game. Um, and and all, I mean, they got some help from OU with just uh, not really making a ton of adjustments in the second half of what they were doing offensively. But Georgia's defense balled out in the second half. They were very, very good. But what it makes you wonder though is. Do these teams that win national championships, when you go back and watch a film like this, does this stuff happen? Do these things happen on those teams that are more disciplined? And, and, and I mean, granted, yeah, I mean, Oklahoma scored 48 points. The defense was bad. I mean, the defense should have had to played better. That's, that's what I say. Offense these, is, yeah, the, so, but Lee, you know, these, like, these past national championship teams, if they had OU's offense, the game would have been over two hours before that. You know, it, it just wouldn't have. This was this is the best offense in the history of college football, Lee, with with just a, a, a very, very bad defense. That, that's that's what this was. This is I, I don't I think people need to realize that a lot more that just with a competent defense this year, uh, like I mean, a competent defense, I think, they, they I think would everyone have everyone kind of gets that I think they, they would have 
realizes the, the that. Sooners this year would have walked to the national championship. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't have. It, it would have been easy. So you know, I. I guess the main point, though, and and what we talked about immediately after the game is that the frustrating part is that the ball was in Oklahoma's hands, the offense's hands, when the game mattered the most, and Oklahoma's offense came up short, which is what we wanted. Yet the Sooners again, valid point, could not could valid not, point, uh, get things done against against Georgia. And again, Georgia's defense, like you said, played great. Uh, so let's get through the rest of it. Second down and five, but again, I mean, you know, picking up five yards still, it's 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 a good first down play. I mean, Oklahoma's put themselves in good position to call a lot of different plays on second down and five. Once again, they're in twenty personnel. Andrews is split out right and twins with Marquise Brown, and this play, Flowers is lined up as an H back on the left side of the formation behind Orlando Brown. Ceedee Lamb is split out wide left. Now. Brown pre-snap motion right to left yet again. So this leaves Andrews solo on the right side of the formation. And Andrews in this play, he runs an eight-yard out. But there, it, there's no chance that he's going to be able to get open because the cornerback and the linebacker on that side of the formation, uh, plus Mayfield was pressured. So there was no way that Andrews was going to be open. And Oklahoma blocked up front like they were going to roll – this was a, I noticed this when I watched a couple times. I hadn't. I'm sure this happened a lot, Grant, this year, but I hadn't really noticed it that much. Oklahoma blocked this play like they were running their double pull counter bread and butter play. So it seemed like they were trying to bait the linebackers and D backs into a run read. But Georgia played so well and didn't fall for it and stayed back in coverage. And Andrews was not open, and Mayfield had to just throw it away on that play. And it looked like, to me, Drew Samia somewhat whiffed on his block, which led to the initial pressure on Baker Mayfield. So that was a, a play that I maybe, again, has happened a lot the year, but I had never noticed them running the the double pull counter, but also with a with a run. So it must have been some sort of uh, RPO. They do that often. Been. They did that often this past year. Um they, they they run that look with the with the poles with, with the polling tackle and guard. They run that look a lot. I, I want to say they almost run that look like half the time. Uh-huh. Um, that that's their bread and butter. And they yeah they don't they don't they don't always uh, they don't always hand it off. They don't always even do play action out of it. Um, sometimes it it really is just a it, it it's a it's a catch by Mayfield and then throw. So, um, I, I I had something else that was interesting to say, but for the life of me, I just I can't remember it. So continue. Maybe uh, maybe if I talk more, it'll jog your memory. So Mayfield throws it away. We got third and five here coming up. It's like, okay, the OU's got to get this third down because they cannot settle for a field goal. So they come out in 10 personnel, which means one running back, no tight ends, four wide receivers. Mark Andrews is split out right as a wide receiver, as he normally does a lot of the time. Trips right for Oklahoma, and the Sooners call timeout. Okay, now before the Sooners call timeout, you can see CeeDee Lamb manned up one-on-one with DeAndre Baker. Baker was the best Georgia cornerback, okay? Though the situation, in my opinion, was prime for a, hey, CD, we're going to ask you to make a play here, so just go make a play. Because you're one-on-one, there's not going to be any safety help because the closest safety was way farther towards the middle of the field. But clearly Oklahoma didn't want to take that kind of chance. And I get it. Like I'm not the biggest fan sometimes of, of those scenarios because you know I'd rather like to out-scheme people as opposed to just ram down a big play just just to do it. But now again, hindsight 2020, I just wish Mayfield would have gotten with CD before the play and said, hey man, I see your one-on-one out there. Run a nice little slant and go route, nice little sluggo, and I'm going to throw it up and you're going to make a play. I'll put, I'll put the ball where it needs to be. You go up there and make a play. You know, and, and back in regulation, on the one touchdown drive of the second half, Mayfield basically did that on that 
deep ball, one-on-one. CeeDee Lamb just went up there and made a play for 37 yards. And that drive again led to Oklahoma's only offensive touchdown in the second half. So, anyways, that that didn't happen. Oklahoma call a timeout. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, did did you look over and see CD wide open or not wide open, but one on one, and kind of think that they would have utilized him more? Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what I said. I, I wish they would have utilized him more. Um, it's but they didn't. They, they didn't, man. It's hindsight. It's they they went to Marquise Brown a lot more and you know what, I guess, you know, based off of the second half of the season, I can't blame them, but I, I CD was the guy I think they needed to make some plays o- over those defensive backs. And that's not something that Marquise can do. Um, you know, he, he's obviously, he's going to run around them and they know that. So uh, they were very prepared for Marquise Brown uh, running horizontally in the, in the second mm-hmm. half. So mm-hmm. I, it, it would have been nice if they would have gone to CD more, but CD had, had, had a couple drops in the first half and maybe that's why they, they just kind of went away from him. Yeah. But he made that one play in the fourth quarter that had to have got his confidence up. And yeah. I mean, that's, so it's not like they, he didn't make any plays. I mean, that was a huge one, but, uh, after the timeout, Oklahoma came out in the same personnel. Uh, they had double twins instead of trips, right? This is the play where Georgia jumped off sides and Oklahoma got a free play and Mayfield just threw it up to Marquise Brown. It was picked off, but it didn't matter. But upon rewatching this play, it's just you can clearly see that Mayfield is targeting Marquise Brown on the right side of this play. And it's not just that play. It's it's almost the entire overtime, which I get it because like it's easier for quarterbacks to throw it to your right than it is to the left. But why not create a scenario where C.D. Lamb again, can just go up and make a play with his athleticism. Why not put CeeDee Lamb on the right side of the formation instead of the left side? You know, why is Marquise Brown the guy they put on the right? And I'm sure it's something that – I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure there's a logical reasoning for that. They had it all all game, all year, I suppose. Uh, It's just, for whatever reason, Mayfield did not look to the left to CeeDee Lamb. I mean, he's got a bigger catch radius than Marquise Brown. Uh, you know, and after Lamb made that huge play in the fourth quarter with that long catch, you know, we just never heard from him again. So that's just one of those hindsight things that hopefully something he learns from and, and CD Lamb gets even more opportunities. But alas, Oklahoma got a free first down and they got to restart. I mean, first and 10 from the 15. And then this was the one of the other head scratching plays in overtime, Grant, when they ran Kyler Murray out there at running back and they they did the option play again like they did with Rodney Anderson during regulation. And it's just like that play is. Um, so I, I went back and, and rewatched that play at least 10 times. I don't know what they were trying to do there. I, I have it. Um, so I've, I, I came away from that. No, it had to have been a miscommunication of sorts um, or it had to have been, I think uh, it was one of the coaches during that, during the broadcast said, um, maybe they were looking, I think it was Bielema who said it, maybe they were looking to, to do a throwback pass or something like that. But at the same time I'm thinking, Oh, I don't know. He didn't have enough time there to react. If there's a throwback pass that I'm, I'm completely confused about that play because they, 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 they ran it to a side where they were completely outnumbered. Um, it, they didn't, what they were doing there wasn't, it wasn't tricky at all. I, I just, I, I would really like to know what they were trying to do on there. That, that would be, that would maybe be a question I would ask Lincoln Riley if, if I ever was able to sit down one-on-one with him, I, I would love to know what they were thinking on that play and what they were trying to do there because it obviously didn't work. They were outnumbered on that side of the field. Yeah, I'm the same way. And unfortunately, I didn't catch any of the coaches in the film room trying to explain that play, even Bielema. I, I don't remember them even trying to explain what happened there, which is why there's so much more 
question surrounding yeah go play. back and go back and watch it bielma brings up maybe they were trying to do like a throwback pass or something okay. he says he says maybe he's he, he sees someone just try to kind of sneak off across the field um but he, okay. I, I i think the the next play or the next thing happens way too quick and then they're already they're already set to already set to play so it, they never got back to it but even then i don't even know if that makes a lot of sense and maybe if they were doing a throwback pass maybe that's why they had to run it to the right because otherwise kyler would have to like actually do a, a 180 and throw you know i i don't know it's that that's a head scratcher to me i would i i would really be curious to find out what they were really trying to accomplish there because it it uh newsflash did not work and it was it was uh, well, it was the same play effectively as they ran with rodney anderson and both of them were ran the same exact way, and they they both were blocked so weirdly where Oklahoma was immediately at a disadvantage from the onset. <laughs> so I just I don't know what they were trying to do. I mean, another weird thing about that play, too, I don't know if you noticed, Orlando Brown was lined up as the right tackle on that play instead of left tackle. And uh, Drew Samia was still at right guard. I don't I don't know why that was. I did was... not I did not notice that at all. That is so, yeah. that's weird. So, so it may, makes you think something was up. I, I mean, there had to have been something up. They, they don't. So you, I, I don't think you would just put Orlando Brown on that side for the hell of it, because that's basically us, you know, waving our arms, saying, "Hey, we're going to run it to this side." Um, so there, there well, had they to both have been, block. They both block, and I say they, Brown and Sabia, they both block to the left, and the play goes to the right. <laughs> So, which is exactly what happened when Rodney Anderson did the same thing in regulation. All the blocking went to the left, but the play went to the right. So something happened with that with that play, and I don't. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's we'll just never a know. maybe. I I have no idea. Maybe it's just a it's a Lincoln just trying to get too cute thing. It would be, I guess, but my best guess at this point in time. So yeah, that's one of the big time head scratchers. That second down, no gain. So it was second and ten, and. As I'm looking at my notes here, this one was second down and ten. Mayfield ends up throwing to Anderson into the flat for a loss of two. Freaking and Roquan this is, Smith. This is a Ro- this is a Roquan Smith play. He closed so incredibly quickly on the play. A, a, a Big Twelve linebacker. Uh, if that's a regular Big Twelve linebacker, Rodney, well, is able to actually catch the ball, turn around, probably slip the tackle, and he picks up ten yards. So this is a play where I have criticism for Baker Mayfield. Now, on the back side of the play, and thank you to the All-22 camera that the ESPN Coaches film gave us. If you watch this play, on the back side, there's C.D. Lamb, again, split out wide to the left. He runs a slant. And if Mayfield would have read the, def- the defense pre-snap and just locked onto C.D. Lamb running the slant route, because obviously he knew C.D. was going to run a slant here, he would have had a nice window to make the throw to C.D. Lamb because he was so far on the wide side of the field he ran a nice little inside slant route that if Mayfield would have just looked to his left, looked that way, it would have been a legitimate positive gain to set up a, at very least a third down and short. And we saw him complete a big third down in the first half on a nice slant pass to C.D. Lamb for like 10, 15 yards, just throwing to his left, no big deal. And to me, it was just clear that Mayfield was looking to his right all the way here, all the, all the time in overtime. And he didn't look to the left really I don't even know. Remember the last time he looked to the left and that's kind of back to one of the early parts of this podcast is he hopefully can learn from this. This is something where he, he, he probably, I don't know if he got, he just kind of locked into a certain thing and he didn't go through his full progression and maybe it was because Georgia was pressuring him so much or he was just his, the, the clock in his head wasn't quite right. 
But uh, the play there would have been just to, hey, throw, throw a nice little slant to C.D. Lamb, who has the, the leverage inside on that slant route when it's man coverage like that. But alas, it's third down and 12 instead of potentially maybe third and two. So do you, uh, yeah, so those are my thoughts on that. Yeah, play. I remember so the play, and he's he was he was he was pressured on that play too. I'm pretty sure Drew Samia just got destroyed on a block in that on that play too, right? That's why he had to get rid of it to Anderson. Well, in the the first, um, maybe if, I, if 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 I'm remembering it correctly, because Mayfield actually has to get rid of it pretty quick to Anderson in the flat, and it's because they have a defensive tackle uh, all over him because Samia whiffed on a block. Um, I, I, I may be thinking of, of, of a different play, but that's, that's how I remember the play. Um, I, I can't, I, I guess I don't recall, uh, paying attention to CD on that one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, early in the first overtime on second and five, there was a play like that where he had to get rid of it and had to throw it away whenever Mark Andrews ran that, the eight yard out. So it yeah. may happen twice, but, uh, and then on third and 12, I mean, this was, uh, they ran that kind of drag route where Marquise Brown went all the way across the field. I mean, I like this play call. I mean, they they clear out the entire left side of the field. They try to get Brown running the drag across, and, and it worked earlier in the game too. Uh, this time, though, he just he was tackled. And mainly the person in charge of Marquise Brown wasn't properly picked in the middle of the field. He was able to get through all the trash, whereas earlier in the game, that guy got picked pretty well, and Brown had a lot more of a free run. And, and the all 22, you can see that it's Miles Tease that is in on the left side, and he's the one that's supposed to be the guy that picks that cornerback, pick Marquise Brown's cornerback. And and I, obviously, this would have been like offensive pass interference if Tease would have d- tried to do something so obvious and like hit the guy or pick him because you can't do that. Uh, but I mean, earlier in the game, I mean, whatever it worked out, and just maybe Miles Tease is really good at that. Maybe he's just like a really good player when it comes to that, and that's just why he was out there. But it was just kind of surprising to see in that situation that Tease was in the game and it wasn't Michael Jones or it, that has or to be Jeff Bedet. That has to be yeah. it. That he just has a that he has a particular aptitude for that for that particular play. Um, and also, yeah, they they did run that play, that same play in the first half, and Brown ripped off about like a fifty yarder on it, mm-hmm. um, and. What was different about that play, Lee, is that in the first half, Brown caught that ball behind the line of scrimmage. And uh, before Mayfield even threw it, there were already receivers on that play actively blocking. Um, and honestly, I, I didn't check this in, in overtime to see if that was happening as well. Because, you know, if, if you catch the ball behind the line of scrimmage, you can they can block downfield all they want. So mm-hmm. um, it, it'd be interesting, I guess, to go back and, and look at that. I'm not going to go back and look at it, but it, it would be interesting to see if, if you ever do, because I'm sure you will. <laughs> I mean, really, this also, too, was just Georgia was just just very disciplined. And it, I almost wish they would have ran this play on second down instead of third down. Got, you but, know what? Uh, but Georgia's, this is probably their go-to, yeah. like, third down. Like, we got to get something. Here's our third down play call. And Georgia Georg- stopped it. Georgia's defense played played really well in the second half. And you know what? That's That can happen sometimes. Texas's defense played really well in the second half against OU. Um, sometimes it happens. I, I think they... They gave themselves, I think, enough of a cushion in the first half where it shouldn't have mattered, but it unfortunately did. And I think, you know, past OU teams paired with this with this offense from this season, I, I think would have would have won the national championship. Um, unfortunately, this just happened to be maybe the worst Oklahoma defense in program history. So, um, ironically, coupled with the best offense, <laughs> yeah, you know, just potentially all the extremes. ever. 
all so, the extremes. A very a very interesting season. It's 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 a season that I'm that that I'm always going to look back and admire quite a bit. I I really really loved this past season, even even if it if it ended in 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 gut punching ways. Well, of course, that was basically it. Cybert came on, field goal got blocked, and Sony Michelle scored the game winning touchdown. The rest is history. Now I, I get it. I, if you've if we if you've listened to this whole thing about the Rose Bowl, clearly you're interested in it, like like I am, like Grant kind of is. Um, so thanks for listening. I mean, if you're one of those listeners that's kind of hate listening to this, then I, I apologize for bringing it back. I, I get it, but you know I hadn't seen this coach's film yet, for overtime at least, and upon viewing the tape, it just furthered my thoughts, like I said, the day after the game, the first podcast after the game, is that I think Oklahoma just tried to get too cute in the Rose Bowl, and also Georgia's defense was really good. So, I mean, hat tip to them for adjusting and making Baker Mayfield and Lincoln Riley think a lot more in the second half. And just to close it out, at least my thoughts, and Grant, you can have the final thoughts as well on this. Uh, Best case scenario, and I think I might have mentioned this before, is that Lincoln Riley grows significantly from that loss, learns a ton about how to manage a playoff game. I think the guy, Riley that is, he's – an offensive genius. I mean, he's got a chance to be one of the best offensive coordinators slash head coaches ever, but the bar has been raised so high for him now. Is it fair? Probably not because he had an elite quarterback at his disposal all throughout his time at Oklahoma. But of course his job now is to keep it going without Baker Mayfield, elite coaches in college adjust to make it work when their best players graduate. Can Lincoln Riley be one of those coaches? I certainly think he can, and I certainly hope he is. Okay, yeah, Lee. My, I, I, I guess I'll, I'll just, I'll just kind of put my final thoughts on the game, and I'll just, I'll wrap up the game. And so this is, this is really the first time I've watched it since you know I was there in person. Um, and my final thoughts are: I thought OU was, OU was the OU that they were ninety-five percent of the season, or at least you know minus the second half of the Iowa State game. That's who they were in the first half. They they played Oklahoma football, or at least two thousand seventeen Oklahoma football in the first half of that game. Um, gave up a lot of yards on defense, but they they got stops when they needed to. And hell, they had a seventeen point lead. Um, what happened in the second half was they 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 got a little too comfortable in their shell is what happened, and uh, that's unfortunately what I suspected to happen. So it was a combination of that them not uh, definitely taking their foot off the pedal and also Georgia just playing very, very well on defense in the second half. Uh, Georgia Georgia did some some really nice things, like you said, with disguising their coverages, but really for the most part, they were in straight cover one the entire second half, which means they were just man-on-man against everybody and they won a lot of one-on-one battles uh, and that's what happened. And so by the time that Georgia punched OU in the mouth and got back into the game, anything can happen. And then so when you get to OT, whereas I'm sure OU was was certainly not in a shell again, or at least they weren't thinking they were in a shell. Once you once you're in that situation, the game is close, and it's in that it's in that situation, anything can happen. And I think that's what happened. And so, I, like I said, in my opening take: sometimes you execute extremely well, sometimes you execute sort of okay, um, sometimes you don't execute at all. Those are the three possibilities when you're in the arena, when you're playing football, and and over time like that, when you're in that situation, when you've put yourself in that situation, there's always a possibility those things are going to happen, um, or one of those things are going to happen, and unfortunately, the the bad things happened. So um, that's I I think it's a situation they they never should have been in in a game that you know I it, it's it's so weird to say this Lee, but it's like I. 
I, I almost wish he, Lincoln Riley could have passed off the second half of that game to Bob Stoops. And I know that sounds weird, but that it, it really does feel like a lot of the things that happened in this game were because uh, of, of Lincoln Riley's inexperience as a head coach. Um, because you saw Bob Stoops go for the jugular a lot. That was one thing he always did. He, he liked to, when he thought that he had you beat, uh, he, he kind of double tapped you for good measure. And they, uh, the Sooners really needed to do that. And I, and I think the thing that stings the most watching it again is that they, they, they honestly needed one more touchdown drive and that football game was over. Um, and they, they should have come out in the second half of that game um, as inventive as they had been the entire season because that could have effectively ended the game. Um, and I wish they would have had that mindset. And that's my final takeaway from the game. All right, well, maybe that means... The Rose Bowl has been put to bed. And the next game of any consequence, if you want to call it that, is April 14th, the spring game. So maybe that will save any sort of OU game discussions for when the spring game happens. And we won't talk about the Rose Bowl anymore, at least uh, until, well, until there's another reason to talk about it. Okay, that is our show. We've got just one more March episode remaining. So that means... Just one more intro featuring an Oklahoma player who wore the number three. Now, if you've been listening to all the podcasts this month, there's an obvious player who wore number three that we've left out so far. Tune into next week's episode to get the answer. For Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.